Good morning. Today's reading comes from Luke 2, verses 22 to 38. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Jesus and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, The child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and the sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe Asher. She was very old. She lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. I got a good gift this morning. Um, I have been out of communication with Alan for a week because he was diving at a place where there was no communication. And he sent me a, a nice text saying that he is safe, which I am very grateful. And. Uh, Makes me glad he will be home tomorrow night. So here we are, almost through January. Advent and New Year's resolutions, a distant memory. We are back to regular living in our daunting January weather. However, I want to revisit some of our reflections of the past month. You were probably wondering at the choice of a story here because you thought we were already back into regular life. Advent's reminders of the nearness of Jesus have been particularly encouraging to me. God has broken into our world and our own individual particular worlds, bringing peace and hope and comfort and healing. As the prophet Micah reminds us with his peculiar metaphor, The Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. We can truly live our lives in conversation with God. But these reflections have been given in a challenging context. Advent season 2023, and now 2024, has been on the macro level an environment of post-pandemic uncertainty, war, political strife, 
The suffering of all the world has overwhelmed us and depleted our joy. The winter sun, there but not visible, the gray days with no snow to brighten the landscape, finally we got some. No obvious vistas of play in the outdoors have dampened our spirits. And many of us went through Christmas season with costs that would not go away. And some of us have been dealing with health concerns greater than colds. It all gives new poignancy to the prophet Isaiah's words. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. Especially the first part, the people who sat in darkness. If only we could hear, if only we could see. The people as a world community with all its struggles and anguish amidst hostilities and violence and anger and injustice, exploitation of one another and of the earth itself, the people, each of us, in our own little circles of darkness, fears, addictions, secret failures, disappointments. Is it true that the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light? Somehow, I have had to work this season to experience the nearness of Jesus. With the first part of Isaiah's prophecy ringing in my ears, the people who sat in darkness. Of course, Isaiah too was speaking in faith. He could not literally see that great light which we know in retrospect was a vision of the wonderful counselor, mighty God, Prince of Peace. All this reflection drew me to think through the motif of light in the Bible. In literature studies, finding a thread of an idea through a text can help unlock its meaning and emotional impact. The Bible, of course, is too large of a book to catch every nuance of a theme in the small undertaking. But just pulling out a few phrases that came to mind and using a concordance to supplement yielded some pleasant treasures to celebrate. Let's see if I can get this going. David, will you switch it for me and just follow so I don't have to worry about it? It's the next slide. That's okay. If not, I'll just carry on. The motif of light in the scriptures runs right through the text. Beginning at the beginning in the Genesis account of creation. In the beginning, God's first act of creation, let there be light, that was and is his intention. In the New Testament, is this going to work for me? Yes? No, it's going backwards now. Okay, I got it. <laughs> In the New Testament, the evangelist John gives another account of creation, making the connection of Christ as both giver and gift of life and light. In the beginning was the word, in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. 
Those who wrote the lovely poems that are found in the Hebrew Psalter had a glimpse and gave us words to claim that light. And it runs all the way through the Psalms, but I've just chosen four here. And uh, I think it's one of them has already been used as our introduction to the service. Psalm 18, 28. It is you who light my lamp. The Lord, my God, lights up my darkness. Now, these may be some verses that you can claim. In whatever circumstances you find yourself in, just think about some of these beautiful verses. It is you who light my lamp. The Lord, my God, lights up my darkness. Psalm 27.1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. In Psalm 36, how precious is your steadfast love, O God, for with you is the fountain of light. In your light, we see light. And Psalm 89.15 Happy are the people who walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance. I sort of watched you folks out of the corner of my eye when we were playing or singing Waymaker, and I noticed you, your faces lit up. He's the light in the darkness for us, isn't he? We move on. In the prophets, Isaiah, and we've already referred to this verse. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. Once again, Isaiah prefaces his great declaration of the child who has been born for us, authority resting upon his shoulders, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, such familiar Christmas words with these haunting, almost wistful words that I have just read. Second Isaiah joins the first prophet in his confidence in Isaiah 42. I will lead the blind by a road they do not know. I will turn the darkness before them into light. Jesus, of course, is more direct in his actions and words. He heals the blind so they can see, and most important, recognize him. He announces his identity, explaining its implications for all who will embrace him. We read in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We're almost through the Bible. In the letters of the apostles, one such reference comes from the passionate and exuberant Peter. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do you Feel yourself warming to these verses? Finally, the culmination. I have no idea what that is. <laughs> That's all right, Dave, just leave it. 
finally, the culmination of this great light show is revealed in the last chapters of the Bible in Revelation 22 and 21. Then, sorry. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. On either side of the river is the tree of life, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And there will be no more night. I guess we're just celebrating this as we go, aren't we? Isn't it nice? I love music, as you know. But maybe it's somebody's phone. <laughs> and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And there will be no more night. They need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And the light is the lamb. Could you turn it off for a moment? With all these declarations of light, why don't we see? One modern poet, Gwendolyn Brooks, wrote a disturbing poem called Truth. It starts like this. And if sun comes, how shall we greet him? Shall we not fear him after so lengthy a session with shade? Though we have wept for him, though we have prayed all through the night years, what if we wake one shimmering morning to hear the fierce hammering of his firm knuckles hard on the door? She suggests in her closing lines that we flee into the shelter, the dear thick shelter of the familiar haze. The dark hangs heavily over the eyes. The dark hangs heavily over the eyes. The title of my reflections is borrowed from the beautiful book and movie that many of you have read or seen, All the Light We Cannot See. The author was once asked what he meant by his title, and he said his title is a metaphor for the fact that the slice of possibility is so small and there is so much culturally, scientifically, and politically out there that we cannot see. In spite of his captivating story, with its delicate probing of blindness and seeing, I think he sells himself a little short in not naming the light's source. We need to learn to see. That seeing is connected with the spiritual realm where God resides. And that seeing is connected with faith and ultimate relationship with our creator redeemer, who in the words of Abraham Heschel, lifts the veil at the horizon of the known opening a sight of the eternal. Each of us, Heschel suggests, has at least once in his or her life experienced the momentous reality of God. Isn't that startling, what he's suggesting here? That at least once in our lives, we have experienced the momentous reality of God. Now, one of the peculiar moments in the Christmas narratives in Luke's gospel is the dialogue between the angel and Zechariah in Luke 1. And just to review that story briefly here, 
Zechariah was a priest, a righteous man living blamelessly before God, we're told. He had one big disappointment in his life. He and his wife had no children. I'm not surprised that when God chose to do something special, he hit on that sore spot. He chose to use Zechariah's hurt for his glory, like other childless couples in the Bible. Once when he was serving in the temple, an angel appeared. He was terrified. The angel told him not to be afraid and then gave him wonderful news. He and Elizabeth, his wife, was going to have a baby soon. And this son would be a very important person preparing the Jewish people for the coming of the Messiah. The, the news was too good to be true. And his response was one of skepticism. He protested they were too old. And we note the angel's startling response. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you. Because you did not believe my words, you will become mute, unable to speak until the day these uh, things come to pass. And Zechariah had nine months to think about and confront God's message. And then the torrent of words of prophecy which flowed from his mouth when John the Baptist was born showed a man who had learned to see. Near the end of his prophecy, he interprets Isaiah's words. By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. God is intentional and dramatic. Drawing large figures for almost blind people. I'm borrowing that phrase from Flannery O'Connor. As he prepared each person he included in his story of the birth of Jesus. Each person we witnessed as we went through the Advent stories was receiving a revelation, an opening of his or her eyes. In Zechariah's words, the dawn from on high has broken upon them. Now let's move from the Bible to our own lives. As you think of your own life, as we have moved out of the Christmas season into a new year, has the dawn from on high broken into your life in any way? Has the nearness of Jesus become real, touching the dark spots of your life? Now, when all the miraculous interventions have died down, we moved, we moved to a quieter scene, figures not included in our crushes, maybe ones we don't associate with Christmas at all. Jesus presented at the temple. This is Jesus' first journey to Jerusalem. The writer Luke tells us his parents are fulfilling two rituals required of devout Jews. Mary's purification after the birth of a child where they offered a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, and the presentation of their firstborn to the Lord. At that time, the law required this presentation of the firstborn son 
but the couple could buy back the son with an offering of money. The comparison is sometimes made here with Hannah in the Old Testament offering Samuel to the Lord. She does not buy back her firstborn son, but gives him up to the Lord. Curiously, no mention is given here of Mary and Joseph buying back Jesus either. While in the temple, we have encounters with two older wise people. As, as has been alluded to several times already. First, there is Simeon, a righteous, devout man looking for the consolation of Israel. The phrase suggesting hope for the messianic age when God would end Israel's time of alienation and suffering. And I'm sure if you're like me, we think of Israel today even as we um, watch what's happening in the world. and we impose that on the text, but here at this point, uh, it it is unique. He is guided by the Spirit to come to the temple. And there's Anna, a prophet. I find that most curious that she's called a prophet. A widow for many years who had embraced a vocation of praying and fasting, who lived in the precincts of the temple and spent all her time there. I think of a variety of wise people like Anna and Simeon, even in our church here. They were two people at the right place at the right time, a lifetime commitment of waiting for the Messiah, of serving God with eyes of faith. Can you put this back on? There are two artists' portrayal of the scene. I'm using one from a Flemish master, um, his last name is Van der Weyden, and I'm sure I have murdered the pronunciation. It's called Presentation in the Temple, and it comes back from the 1400s. Let's see if I can get it here. You have it? Oops. I jumped ahead. So here is this picture that you have been seeing in a variety of places lately here. One of the first things, if you can see it, I'm not sure we can from this distance, One of the first things we can note in this picture is the faraway look in each person's eyes. Eyes seeing the baby, but seeing in the distance the baby's destiny as they listen to what Simeon has to say. Then there is the more famous picture of Rembrandt, the Song of Simeon, which dramatizes the seeing even more, though it's harder for us to see. This is typical of Rembrandt to uh, play with light and darkness in his drawings or in his paintings. Rembrandt loved this scene and painted different aspects of it over the years. Here he concentrates exclusively on the face of Simeon and the young child. It was Rembrandt's last painting and it lay in his house unfinished after his death in 1669. Here are his words. Not Rembrandt's, but Simeon's. Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace, according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, that's us, most of us, and for glory to your people, Israel. Simeon, with his eyes half-closed, 
and his mouth open, is lost in prayer to the God who is close to him. What I have lived all my life for, I am now holding in my arms. He holds the child gently and reverently, but his being seems already half withdrawn from this world to be forever with God. Try to imagine, as Rembrandt does, the experience of Simeon. What I have lived for is a reality here. The old man, whose eyesight is probably dimmed with age, is seeing well with the eyes of faith and the revelation by the Holy Spirit. Anna, too. I did, I'd forgotten I'd done that one. Anna, too, has eyes to see. Luke records that at that moment she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Israel. The picture here of Anna is again by Rembrandt. He is using his mother as the model. All the praying and fasting has yielded its fruits before her eyes. Now, there's an essential irony in this tale. These two marvelous old saints are declaring their joy in seeing salvation in the presence of a baby, not yet old enough to carry out that mission. He is merely being presented to God at this point. The journey to Jerusalem Jesus takes as an adult on the way to the cross is a long way off. So their seeing is surely an act of faith as much as any of ours is. Just as the angel said to Zechariah, I stand in the presence of God, requiring a faith response from the old priest, here Anna and Simeon recognize they are standing in the presence of God, the child in Simeon's arms, they are exercising eyes of faith as well. In the midst of this tender, happy moment, a shadow is cast upon the scene. Simeon offers his benediction to the parents, saying to Mary, this child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Here is the first indication in Luke's account of the cost involved in seeing, or not seeing for that matter. Salvation will not be without cost. Jesus will bring truth to light and in so doing, writes one commentator, throw all who come in contact with him into a crisis of decision, either a rising or a falling, life or death will result. We watch our culture's growing distance from the essential Christianity and it gives us a cold sick feeling. Brooks' poem comes to mind again, and if sun comes, how shall we greet him? Shall we not dread him? Shall we not fear him after so lengthy a session with shade? The dark hangs heavily over our eyes. 
there is a heavy price to pay for each person and the whole culture for turning away from the Messiah. Now we know in our hearts that Christmas is essentially not about warm sentimental feelings of Christmas trees, lights, gifts, and family dinners, though we have enjoyed all these. Advent is a crisis of decision, a battleground for our very souls. What we have longed for all our lives, even when we cannot see what the longing means. One writer explains, Jesus precipitates the centrally important movement of one's life toward or away from God. We must truly see him as he is. Perhaps we 21st century modern Christians need to see better too and approach our Savior with the same open-hearted and joyful gratitude that Simeon and Anna demonstrated for us. In Simeon's prophecy to Mary, he also prepared her for the suffering that lay ahead of her and for Jesus. And a sword will pierce your own soul, too. The commentator Craddock writes about Simeon's words. As much as we may wish to join the name of Jesus to only this positive, satisfying, and blessed in life, the inescapable fact is that anyone who turns on light creates shadows. And as the light of salvation touches our lives and the lives of those around us, we can expect shadows in terms of rejection, struggle with sin, loneliness, and all that accompanies a decision to walk the narrow way. Maybe we're a little afraid of this seeing business. Not sure we can handle a face-to-face -face encounter with Jesus. Maybe we don't know how. We think we're not the type to meditate and reflect. We're busy, active people, but not comfortable with seeing. Three thoughts as we go forward. One, Hang around those who see. Be where God is present and speaking. Now look at the picture again. There's an extra figure in the picture. More than Joseph, Mary, Simeon, Jesus, and Anna. Who is the young woman in the foreground? Artists sometimes painted themselves into a picture or someone else who wanted to be included. Do we perhaps want to be included in God's story? So therefore, hang around those who see. Second, be aware of, attend to where we invest our thinking. Renewing our minds, St. Paul suggests in his letter to the Romans, a gentle but serious prodding. How do we feed our souls in our reading and watching? Is our internet browsing sometimes a curse? Three, recognize that seeing is a gift to receive. Throughout Jesus' adult ministry, he made blind people see. 
God arranged showings for people who were available and open to his mysterious gift. Even Simeon, who saw no angels in the sky or star to lead him to the Christ child, was led by the Spirit into the temple. Seeing is a gift, but one has to receive it. What can we take from the story of Anna and Simeon to nourish our souls as we carry on this new year, 2024? Do we have eyes to see our salvation? Hearts full of love and reverence? Mouths open to speak of his redemption? hands and feet to carry the good news to a culture which thinks there is no good news. Amen.